Welcome to CMIO Podcast, a show devoted to educating and informing those who are making healthcare easier for others. Whether you're involved with informatics, analytics, or new technologies that make the lives of our practicing clinicians better, this show is for you. My name is Dr. Mark Weissman. I'm a practicing physician, a CMIO, and the host of CMIO Podcast today, covering the news to know for July 13th. As usual, I will pick six to seven articles. We'll go over them, the ones that I think are most relevant to to CMIOs, and a little commentary in there. As we approach our 100th episode, I do want to thank those of you who continue to listen. The goal here is to continue to put out valuable clinical and relevant content for CMIOs because some of this stuff was hard to find. I want to cover what's going on in the daily life of a CMIO not so much the statistical analysis and the ivory tower stuff, one of the real stuff. So hopefully you're enjoying. And if you have uh, guests that you think I should bring on, please shoot me an email and I'll be happy to reach out and see what we can do. Now on to the news. This article comes out of Becker's Hospital Review by Jackie Drees, Thursday, July 9th. Most physicians predict fewer than 10% of their visits will be virtual by next year. This was a study done by Sage Growth Partners, which I believe is a consulting firm, and they were giving some predictions post-pandemic. They were surveying physicians about their opinions of post-pandemic, and a huge percentage thought that less than 10% of the visits would be done that way. So I looked at my own system, my own data, and I don't think the 10% is is accurate. I think it's too low. I feel more comfortable around the 20% range, which is close to where we are today, and I'm seeing some stabilization at that number. There are some people who are not going to want to risk coming out of their homes and acquiring COVID while waiting in your waiting rooms. So telehealth is a great option for them. They still get the care they need, and they don't risk the exposure. I think there's a certain percent that are immobile and coming into the office has always been a difficult time for them. They certainly will take advantage of telehealth for as long as they are able. And then there's some who just like the convenience of it. Quite honestly, if you are a busy executive and you have to take half a day off of work to go get a doctor's appointment, that's annoying. Whereas if it's 15 minutes when just clicking on your cell phone when the appointment time comes, that's easy. So people are going to be willing to do that. So that's why I think it's going to hang out around 20%. The reasons why it would drop very quickly would be if insurance companies decide that they are no longer going to cover telephone only, audio only visits, and if they, which many are, and the other piece that will cause it to drop is if uh, the parity to an in-office visit goes away. As soon as you say that an in-office visit pays more than the telehealth visit, this whole thing falls apart and we go right back to where we were. So I maybe that was on the mind of some of these respondents when they're looking at the survey and decided that there'll be at very few telehealth visits next year. Maybe they're thinking that the payment model won't be there. So far from what I'm seeing, I believe it will be there. Next article comes out of Jamia. This is their June issue. The title of the article is, Where is my infusion pump? Harnessing network dynamics for improved hospital equipment fleet management. And so this was done at John Hopkins University. 
what they were looking at is that timely availability of intravenous infusion pumps is critical for high quality care delivery. And pumps are shared amongst the hospital units, often without central management of their distribution. And so some units will run into critical shortages while others are hoarding. And so they went back and looked at data. They have a tracking system in place, which I'm assuming is RFID, although I did not see that specifically called out, but that's usually what it is. And they found that doing their network analysis, if they track their inventory, they had a 44% increase in the number of carriers above their safe and inventory levels when they use this tool. So why do I think this is all interesting for CMIOs? I don't expect us to go tracking uh, IV pumps. But where you should think about this is in patient care areas and tracking the flow of patients. Once you have the RFID systems in place for tracking pumps across your hospital, you can also track patient flow and see, okay, are the delays in getting a patient down to radiology because the transport people are running all over the place and you don't have enough of them? Or is it that the radiology area is jammed with patients and there's just nowhere to put them? You can see all that if you put tracking tools onto patients or staff. And we did this when I was at Sentara Healthcare, the nurses wore tracking devices on their badge. It was just their regular ID badges had an RFID chip in it and their location could be determined. I think that was great for doing, we were using it mostly for motion studies to say, okay, how far does a nurse need to travel throughout their day? Can they get what they need without having to go on a hike? And that's also a valuable use of this tool but it's also great for understanding the bottlenecks in your, uh, in your system. So I've still, I'm a fan of this RFID technology. It's been way too expensive historically, hundreds of thousands of dollars to cover a hospital. Those costs have come way down and I think we can do this now much more effectively. And combined with EHR timestamps, you can get really good data on flow. Next, this article comes out of healthcarefinancenews.com. COVID-19 is forcing rural hospitals to rethink their business models by Jeff Lagasse. And so all of you know that rural hospitals, these single standalone facilities that may be the only facility around for an hour's drive time are under severe financial pressure. And this article covered a little bit as to why, and it's intuitive, I just never thought of it in this way. A hospital's purchasing power is very much dependent upon your size. So when you're a huge health system like Tenant, you can go out and buy tongue depressors or whatever it is that you need at huge discounts because of the bulk that you're buying in. And these rural hospitals, they can't do that. But the payment models that the country has developed are based upon the average cost of doing a procedure. So we pay X amount for a, a cholecystectomy regardless of what it costs you to actually deliver that care. And so it costs those rural hospitals more to deliver that care. They cannot buy at the economies of scale. And so they are disadvantaged by this, which is why consolidation makes sense. You can spread your overhead out across more facilities, in particular your IT infrastructure, Think about adding a new hospital. Do you have to double your IT staff? No, you don't. You get to use the same staff 
and leverage that to the new hospital. You may have to buff up a little bit for the actual implementation, but you shouldn't need to double in size your IT department. So I thought this article was interesting. They did not say that there's going to be a rush to consolidation yet because the federal government is still keeping some of these hospitals afloat. I don't think that that will continue forever. And I think here's what the article said to wrap. Consolidation is one strategy small hospitals may need to pursue to remain financially viable. Some would also do well to identify their most profitable business lines and make the decision to focus on those areas, perhaps even cutting certain business lines that have historically proven unprofitable. Difficult decision. You may face some backlash from your community when you cut out that unprofitable service, particularly if that unprofitable service is trauma, which is probably your most unprofitable service. So when that happens, when local hospitals start cutting their trauma programs, that's when the state may have to come in and say, okay, what is it gonna take? What do we have to pay you to keep the trauma service in place? And that depends on grassroots efforts from the local population, putting the word into their state government saying, we've got to have trauma care in this area. And if there's not a lot of people there who do that, I think the state will ignore it and focus on the markets that have the most voters. That's just the American way. Next, this article is interesting. This one came out of EHR Intelligence, how AI assistants streamline EHR documentation and clinical workload. This is Ortho Indy Hospital in Indiana. So this is the first orthopedic specialty hospital and one of the largest of its kind in the country. They were spending up to three hours after work and more on weekends to complete EHR related tasks. However, after they implemented a mobile artificial intelligence assistant into the EHR, after our hours charting and documentation was a thing of the past. So the spokesperson who's talking about this from Ortho Andy said that the hospital attempted to reduce burden by leveraging its patients to input their own data through the patient portal, while the provider was used as a secretary to manually input the rest of the data. That's where they were, and then they went to this new solution. And to be honest, I'm still in that first part. I'm still trying to get my patients on the portal and having them help to enter the HPI through questionnaires. Still trying to get that to happen in our area. But these guys had tremendous success. The name of the tool, I'll mention again, I have no financial relationship to any of these companies I ever mentioned. It's called Saykara, S-A-Y-K-A-R-A. I went on the website and it looks like they integrate with every major EMR. I'm not sure how that works, but the you just talk. It looks like it uses your iPhone and it's then going to use a cloud-based tool to pull out the parts of the conversation, develop your dictation, and somehow get that into your EHR. I'm interested in this technology for sure. Although there is another article that comes out of Jamie. This one was back in the May issue. Uh, how describes work inform development of speech-based clinical documentation technologies a systemic systematic review so basically in this article there were 65 articles that the, they looked through to look at kind of what are scribes doing for you that maybe value add and here's their conclusions the results of this study provide several implications for designing technologies that can generate clinical documentation based on naturalistic conversations taking place in the exam room 
First, a one-size-fits-all solution will be unlikely to work because of the significant variation in scribe work. Second, technology designers need to be aware of the limited role that their solution can fulfill. And third, to produce comprehensive clinical documentation, such technologies will likely have to incorporate information beyond the exam room conversation. So I think that's a little bit of a jaded view here. I think the AI tools will get to the point, they may not be there yet, but if there's data from outside sources, well, they can certainly pull that in. Do I think that scribes will be able to, excuse me, do that AI tools will be able to do everything that a scribe does? For the most part, yes. They can go on the article and say, well, scribes can do other clerical work. Yes, but they tend not to. They tend to focus on documentation. That's what they do. I have seen them go into the charts and prep the charts for the next day. It's very valuable for helping the doctor prepare and the AI probably can't do that today, although it should be able to get there. I do think that this is the right technology, the right time, even though the Jamie article kind of downplays it. I think it is time for health systems to move into these tools. The cost is one of the things that concerns me. There's no return on investment here. Now you can say, well, you're going to reduce burnout. Reducing burnout does not have a return on investment with dollars that you can spend directly. And you say, well, if the doctor doesn't retire or doesn't uh, quit then or commit suicide, then you are reducing the, the cost and there's an ROI in that. Yes, I get that. My personal uh, CFOs, when I've discussed that, have not accepted that argument. They want to see actual dollars. And the only way that happens is if you're willing to see more patients. And I'm not sure we're there yet. I think these tools will make the lives of our practicing clinicians better and we should pursue it for that reason and the ROI is going to be soft. And it's just gonna be a hard conversation to have with the CFO. Next article. This one's out of EHR intelligence as well. University Health System to remotely launch Epic Systems EHR. This is the South Texas Health System in San Antonio. They're gonna do a uh, go live. It's 170 million upgrade as they move to Epic and they're gonna do it remote. So the Hundreds of epic people that normally come on site for the upgrade will not be there. They're going to just remote in. And I highlight this because I think this is the way of the future. It will reduce your cost of implementation. If you can keep the kids from Epic up in Wisconsin, that is a, a model that is going to be successful going forward. I think there are a variety of situations where you do need to have them on uh, close hand. You want them to be immediately available if something's going wrong, but I'm not sure immediately available means that they have to be in your data center. They very well could be remoted in or virtually uh, connected. Next, CPOE systems and clinical decision support tools negatively impact EHR alerts. This one also out of EHR intelligence. Uh, by Christopher Jason, July 8th. Hospitals are increasing clinician burnout due to a high number of EHR alerts from computerized physician order entry systems and clinical decision support tools, according to a study published in JAMIA. Researchers at the University of Utah and Brigham and, Brigham and Women's Hospital designed the CPOE evaluation tool to develop a full demonstration of national safety standard for decision support, which was administered by the LeapFrog group through their annual hospital safety 
survey. And now I get to go on my rant about LeapFrog, so bear with me. I'm not a fan of vanity reporting mechanisms that there's a significant amount of work to prepare for these things. And I don't know that we are making ourselves any safer through them. I agree with doing the leapfrog survey once, understand what's in it and what they're benchmarking against. But once you know that you have to staff your ICU 24 seven with critical care board certified intensivists, well, you still know that the next year, you don't have to keep taking the survey but your CEO and others are going to get themselves all worked up if you don't score an A because that stuff shows up in the public. This is like out of that uh, movie War Games. The only way to win is not to play the game. You don't want to play this. I agree with taking it once to understand, okay, what alerts are they looking for a provider to have that would keep them safe? And if that has to do with someone putting in a, a ridiculous number on a warfarin dose and the system stops and blocks that from happening with a forcing function, fantastic. I think that's wonderful. You learn that the first time you go through it though. I don't know that you have to continue to do these things. My next complaint about LeapFrog is they don't take into account that we practice as a care team. And so I may very well be able to order a bad thing in the EHR, but if there is a forcing function that stops the dispensing at the pharmacy. If the pharmacist in the hospital is not going to let the medication out, then I believe that you didn't have to alert the physician. You can have the alerts hit somewhere else on the care team and with good forcing functions, you can prevent serious safety events that way. But on LeapFrog survey, no credit for that. If it didn't hit the physician, you're penalized. At least that was the last time I took this uh, survey. The other part of this that they do is they're now getting into seeing if you have nuisance alerts that are firing. And many systems have nuisance alerts for a variety of reasons. None of them are particularly good, but you may have a particular, a particular area that your system is focusing on where you do need an alert to help remind providers to prescribe beta blockers for post-MI patients perhaps. And for whatever the reason you're firing that at the nurses, let's say. That would be a nuisance alert for many, but if your system needs that to achieve one of your internal goals and it makes good clinical sense, then do it. And so, I, I believe that we should reduce nuisance alerts. Don't get me wrong. I just don't believe we should be measuring it in a leapfrog survey. That's not necessarily making us safer. I don't think the alerts make us safer either. There's better ways of doing this. You get down to the lowest level of alerts that you can, and you benchmark against your peers, and you do that through, well, we have Epic, I can see what our firing rate per 100 medication orders uh, are, or the firing rate uh, per patient on the best practice alerts. That's the kind of information I need. I don't need LeapFrog for that. And with that, I will end my rant and we'll wrap up, we'll wrap up here. Thank you for listening to CMIO Podcast. You can reach out to me on LinkedIn, send me your ideas for shows, guests you'd like to hear from, or just to connect. And I look forward to bringing you to the next time.